everybody. Welcome back to the show. I hope you're all doing well wherever you are. Thank you once again for making the time to tune in. Um, today's show deals with an extremely important topic. It's about the ongoing protests in Iran. On September 16th, a young woman called Masa Amini, she was only 22 years old from Kurdistan, uh, died in Iran after spending three days in a coma. Amini was visiting relatives in Iran and was detained outside a metro station in Tehran a few days earlier by Iran's morality police. They accused her of breaking the law, which requires women uh, in Iran to cover their uh, hair with a headscarf and their arms and legs uh, with uh, loose clothing. It's widely believed that she was beaten by the police. Her death sparked uh, the first big show of opposition on Iran's streets since authorities crushed fuel price protests in 2019, where 1,500 people were killed. The protests have spread all across Iran and around the world, including right here in Canada. Um, in Canada, more recently on the weekend, a large protest uh, took to the streets uh, uh, just outside of Toronto uh, in Richmond, uh, where apparently 50,000 people showed up to protest. The protests in Iran, however, have become increasingly violent since they began. Women have been leading the protests. They've been at the forefront of these protests in Iran with women removing uh, their headscarves uh, and setting fire to the hijab, which is the religious head uh, covering for uh, Muslim women. Videos have also now emerged which show the police uh, beating protesters, mostly women, uh, with uh, batons and spraying tear gas and firing on the protesting crowd. Iran's security forces have cracked down on protesters and those who support them um, have left about 83 people dead, according to the Norway-based uh, Iran Human Rights Organization. For the first time since 1979, 1979 Iranian revolution, the theocratic Islamist regime, which suppresses the country's women, could actually be in jeopardy of falling uh, based on weeks of ongoing street protests with people coming out in the streets and risking everything, including their lives. Given the significance of these protests, it's received relatively little coverage in the Western media. Uh, for example, the 50,000 people who showed up to protests in Canada, I believe was not even front page news here in Canada. And you can imagine how difficult it is to get 50,000 people to protest in Canada. It's also been ignored, uh, largely ignored by politicians and by the so-called progressive left, which you would think cares about women's uh, issues and women's rights, but apparently not so in this case. My guest today is noted Iranian-Canadian lawyer and human rights activist Kaveh Shirouz, who lives in Toronto. He's a well-known critic of the communist regime in Tehran, and it's my Great pleasure to welcome him to the show to talk about what is happening in Iran. Everybody, please welcome Kaveh Sharuz to the show. Um, Kaveh, it's great to have you here. Could you explain to our listeners and our viewers the background to the current crisis in Iran? Um, as I understand it, a young Kurdish woman uh, was arrested by the morality police uh, for a slight deviation from the headscarf rule, and then she died in their custody. Uh, it appears that since her death, um, it has galvanized galvanized the Iranian people uh, in an extraordinary way. Could you cast some light on what is going on in Iran uh, at the moment? 
Sure, happy to. And first of all, thank you so much uh, for the invitation. It's really good to be with you. Um, so I, I think the, the case of Masa, uh, Masa Amini, which you mentioned, um, is, you know, one, we should remember, it's really one crime among thousands and thousands of crimes that the Iranian regime has committed. But this one really, you know, as the expression goes, this is the, the one that broke a camel's back. Um, so the, the facts around that case were, you know, here's a young woman, 22 years old, non-political, has no sort of effort at being, you know, makes no effort at being an opposition figure, nothing of that sort. She's just living her life. Mm -hmm. um, she is from Kurdistan. She comes to Tehran to visit her brother. Um, and there she has an interaction with Geshte Ershad, which is, which actually translates literally as the guidance patrol, but, you know, in English we call them <clears throat> the morality police. Um, this interaction is very well known to anyone that lives in Iran, especially Iranian women, they have to deal with this humiliation regularly, um, where, you know, some thug basically comes up to you and says to fix your hair or to, you know, mm -hmm. you know, fix your shirt or, or, or not even sure, because if you're a woman in Iran, you know, you, you have to wear something over your clothing. But basically, they tell you to just like, you know, uh, make yourself less visible, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, in this case, they detain this young woman, um, they beat her to the point where by the time she was taken to um, a clinic, she was brain dead. And three years, three days later, she was actually declared dead. Um, and this set off protests. Initially, um, you know, the protests were focused on the hijab and kind of what happened to this woman. But very, very quickly, um, it became, uh, frankly, a revolution against the regime. And all the slogans are basically death to the dictator death of the Islamic Republic. There is just, you know, people are tearing down the, the, the pictures of, of the Supreme Leader and so on. So there's just no confusion about what it is that the protesters want. It's very clear that they want a fundamental change in the regime as a result. Right. So, um, so Kaveh, I mean, we'll get more into what's going on in Iran in a little bit, but uh, um, just uh, let, let, I just want to talk about you for, for, for a second. You recently helped organize a large protest just outside of Toronto against the Iranian regime. I believe some 10,000 people showed up to protest. Some people, I've read some estimates putting that at 50,000. Uh, that's, that's the actual police estimate, 50,000. Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. So uh, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how did you come to be a human rights activist and a prominent critic of the communist uh, regime? Sure. Um, so I was born in Iran and I lived in Iran until I was 10 years old. This was right after the revolution. So this was really the reign of terror that I got to see up close and, mm -hmm. and feel. Um, my family, I, I would not say we were, you know, an, an incredibly politically active family, but but, you know, people had been politically active. Um, and several members of my family, as a result, had ended up in Iran's prisons, both before the revolution and after the revolution. Um, the ones, unfortunately, that went into the prison after the revolution didn't really live to tell about it. Um, the closest person to me uh, that suffered that fate was my uncle. Um, he had been arrested at the age of 19, I want to say, possibly 20, um, right after the revolution um, for selling newspapers against the government. And he was given a five-minute trial. Um, he was sentenced been to 10 years in prison. He was brutally tortured. Um, and so I remember as a child, you know, being taken by my grandmother and my mother to visit him. So I, I sort of, when I, we talk about these horrible prisons in Iran, I've actually seen them up close. Um, and in 1988, after having served eight years of that 10 year sentence, he was brought before what's called a, what was called a death commission, 
Um, so basically every political prisoner in Iran was retried, given like a five minute trial, not even five minutes, probably mm -hmm. two minute trial. Um, and based on one or two questions, most of them were sent to hang. Um, to this day, we don't know exactly how my uncle was killed. We don't know where he's buried. We were not allowed to hold a funeral for him. Um, and so that obviously, you know, stays with me. If you talk to a lot of human rights activists, oftentimes they have this sort of central tragedy in their lives. And this has been the central tragedy in mine. My family then moved to Canada a few years later, and I grew up in, in Toronto. I went to law school in the U.S., um, but all along, the story weighed on me. And uh, when I was in law school, I decided to write a, a big paper on these killings because they, no one had really done that. Mm -hmm. And that set me off on a path to human rights activism. I, when, I, when I wrote that paper and I published it, I knew that I couldn't go back and visit my family in Iran anymore. Yeah. Uh, but that was the that was the cost that I had to pay. And I'm, you know, I've been paying it for 20 years. I haven't been back to see my family in 20 years. But uh, finally, you know, the, the human rights work that we've been doing is, is paying off. And uh, we're seeing, you know, movement in the streets. Yeah. And what what were the protests like uh, this past weekend in Toronto? Um, uh, did uh, politicians show up uh, uh, um, uh, in, in solidarity? Who did you reach out to? I read somewhere that you had actually reached out to the prime minister and the foreign affairs minister, but I believe they didn't even acknowledge the invite. Uh, could you? Um, yeah, that's that's correct. And I, I mean, I yeah. don't want to turn this into a partisan sort of bashing of one right. party or another, but I will right. give you the facts. The facts mm -hmm. are, as, are, are as follows. You know, we planned in a very short span of time. I mean, this, mm -hmm. these protests have not been going on that long. Mm -hmm. um, a protest on Saturday, October the 1st. Um, and we invited and we were anticipating 10,000 people to show up. Mm -hmm. 50,000 ended up showing up, which was incredible. Um, we invited a number of speakers. Um, so, for example, we invited the president of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress and she came. We wanted that expression of solidarity. We invited people from civil society, but also we invited politicians from all levels of government at the federal level. Um, we invited um, the leader of every party and in the case mm -hmm. of the liberals, not just the prime minister, but also the foreign minister. Um, Jagmeet Singh um, said uh, or his staff said that he couldn't make it. Unfortunately, he was out in Vancouver. To his credit, he went to a rally in Vancouver. Okay. Uh, Pierre Polyev, um, you know, we're grateful to him. He changed his weekend plans around and he came to Toronto and he gave a speech. Um, the prime minister and Minister Jolie didn't acknowledge um, our email and they didn't come. Uh, there were you know, liberal members of parliament there, one from the Iranian Canadian community, Ali Assasi, gave a terrific speech, but uh, it was, I, I'm gonna be frank, it was disappointing um, not to hear back from you know, the highest ranking members of government. Yeah, I, you know, I've actually been struck by the fact, and I don't know if you share this uh, view, but uh, that uh, you know, many uh, politicians in the West, uh, notably here in Canada, I found that their response to what's been happening in Iran, which is pretty significant, has been rather tepid. Um, and and I would also say that the same could be said about the progressive left, you know, which at the drop of a hat will criticize Israel and other countries, but uh, you know, are not really taking note uh, on what is going on in Iran. Um, how do we understand this? Do you feel like there's a double standard at work? Like, where are the trending "I stand with the Iranians" hashtags? Yeah, um, you know, I, I've been so busy in terms of planning protests and you know writing op-eds and so on. I haven't mm -hmm. had a ton of time to look at kind of what famous um, left-wing figures have yeah. been saying about this protest. So I they can't speak been... and tell. 
they haven't really been saying much. That's... Maybe maybe they haven't. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, you know, I'll take your word for that. Yeah. Um, if if they have not, um, mm -hmm. then that's entirely consistent with past practice. And if okay. and if they have been saying it, then you know, bless them. But that's not yeah. what they've done in the past. Mm -hmm. um, regrettably, much of the progressive left in the last I don't know few decades has come to view the world solely through the lens of you know anti-imperialism. And what that means, essentially, is that they're willing to hold their fire. I don't want to say they want to ally themselves with, but they certainly will not outwardly criticize uh, regimes that um, are in conflict with the United States or Israel. And that's why you find these weird coalitions of left-wingers, for example, sometimes even praising the Islamic Republic of Iran or talking about Russia in positive ways. Um, it's, it's very bizarre. Yeah. Um, you know, this is a phenomenon that happens, I have to admit, also on the far right, but it, it's been much more prominent um, on the left. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's been the issue. It's, you know, Iranian people, Iranian women especially, for a long time have been saying the way we are being treated is really apartheid. It's gender apartheid. Yeah. Women under the Iranian law are considered half of men, literally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, they are horrendously treated, subjected to awful violence the kinds of things that any Western progressive would be horrified by and would never want to, you know, a situation they would never want to actually live under themselves. But when people come, you know, an activist, for example, like Messi Alinejad, who, you know, hopefully your readers know, she's really a prominent Iranian activist who speaks out for women's rights. You know, they accuse her of being an Islamophobe all the time because <laughs> she's saying, look at what is being done in the name of Islam to, to women in Iran. That mm. has been the position of the left. Regrettably, this has seeped into... A lot of our institutions are, mm -hmm. you know, our prime minister's office, for example, I suspect, I mean, I, I can't say, say this for sure, but I suspect a lot of this thinking has clouded their judgment about what sorts of uh, positions they ought to be taking with respect mm -hmm. to theocracies like Iran's. Yeah, well, I, you know, I feel like the our, our present government, I feel that they haven't really done much to challenge the communist, uh, uh, the, the regime in Iran. Um, more recently, the Trudeau government issued a boilerplate uh, statement about being gravely concerned about what's going on in Iran and that the parliament building would be lit up with colors of the Iranian flag. Uh, why do you think that uh, Canada has been so soft on, Ira uh, on, on, on Iran? Um, um, it, it, to me, it doesn't seem plausible because of economic considerations, because Iran, I think, is simply not that important economically to Canada, uh, nor is there a huge diaspora in Canada that supports the regime to, to whom they're playing. So how do we understand Canada's weak response? I mean, do you actually agree that Canada's response has been weak and tepid? Yeah. So first, I, I do agree that Canada's response has been weak and tepid, but yeah. let's I, I want to make sure that we get the facts right. Um, okay. So aside from that statement, which, you know, for the first few days, all the Trudeau government did was issue statements. The last mm -hmm. couple of days, they have announced some uh, important sanctions. And I, you know, we should acknowledge that um, okay. against but the sanctions, in my view, don't go far enough. They don't really meet the demands of the activists. Mm -hmm. What we want is, for example, the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guards, which are so horrendous, it's such a horrendous institution. We want them listed as a as a terror organization for a lot of mm -hmm. what they've done, including shooting down a plane that had a lot mm -hmm. of Canadians on board. Right. Um, but so they haven't done that, but they have taken some steps. So let's let's give them credit for that. Okay. But overall, I would say their response has been quite tepid, um, unsatisfactory. W what is the reason? Well, I think several things. One, I mean, you say Iran is not important enough economically, but I would say there are probably business interests in Canada. Okay. that are interested in entering um, the Iran market. And so they have pushed kind of behind the scenes. 
to make sure that we normalize relations with Iran. Um, unsuccessfully so far, but I think that's part of it. Um, you are again correct. I think you know the, the the diaspora community here, as we saw, you know, fifty thousand people came out in Richmond Hill, yeah. um, is very much against the regime. But there are pockets, and this is something that I spend a lot of time uh, writing about on social media. It's what I call the Iran lobby. There are people who have, um, by virtue of family connections, uh, business connections with Iran, ideological beliefs, uh, they they want to preserve the Islamic Republic in one form or another. And their numbers have increased in recent years. Part of that is because our immigration system is set up in such a way that wealthier investors get to come in. And wealthier investors often, in the case of Iran, are people that have ties to the regime. So they have come into the country, and I don't know how they've managed to do this, but they've got the ear of some of our policymakers. And the image that they were, they have been portraying to our politicians is one where it says, well, you know, Iran's regime is a regime you can do business with. Sure, the people are unhappy, but people are unhappy everywhere. And, you know, Iran has its troubles, but they can work it out. One of the reasons I th I'm so proud that we did this huge rally in Richmond Hill was to dispel that myth and tell mm -hmm. the politicians, look, it's really hard to get 50,000 people on the street. Think about how angry people must be. So yeah. the advice that you've been getting, PMO, the advice you've been getting, foreign minister, it's bad advice. The real advice is what activists have been trying to tell you, which is that this is an awful apartheid regime and you should do everything in your power to get rid of it. It's good politics and also it's the moral thing to do. Yeah, I mean, it is quite extraordinary that 50,000 people showed up and has this even been front page news? In, in it has not. Time? That's yeah. one of the one of the things that shocks me is, yeah. I, you know, we've, we've had coverage. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say every major network has talked about this case. Mm -hmm. But I, I can't think of the last time where we had, you know, 50,000 50, people. Yeah, people I don't. I don't even think the freedom protests had that many people, and those were. And I defer to you. I mean, you're the expert on that, but 50, <laughs> I, I, I follow the news, and I don't see a lot of fifty thousand protests. Yeah, no, no. I think I... this would be front page news, but it was no. it wasn't covered that way. No, uh, it wasn't. And we can, yeah, I mean, we can we can talk about the reasons for that, but I, I suspect because a it cuts against kind of the established narrative in our media that Iran is right. kind of bad, but maybe we can do business with them, as I was just saying. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And partly, I think they were just caught by surprise. They for years they had not understood this anger yeah. that was building. Yeah. Well, you know, so, uh, Kavi, there have there have been previous street protests in Iran since uh, Khomeini came to power in 1979. Uh, how is this going to be different? Is this time going to be different? Is there a reason to believe that this revolution might succeed where others have failed? Yeah. Uh, so it, it is absolutely different. I 100% believe that. Mm -hmm. In my heart of hearts, I believe that it will be successful. This will overthrow the regime. It might not happen immediately, but it will okay. happen in the longer term. Okay. Um, but we should be under no illusions. Iran's regime is an unbelievably brutal regime, and it will not hesitate to shed as much blood as is necessary to stay in power. Um, so there are some dark days ahead, I have to warn everybody. Yeah. Um, the reason I think this this set of protests is different is that in the last, you know, 15, 20 years, there have been a number of mass protests starting in 2009. I mean, there, there were there were some earlier, but 2009 is kind of a watershed. Um, but that protest focused a lot on, you know, a stolen election. It, it sort of accepted the premise that the Islamic Republic should exist, but it wanted to improve it. Um, in 2019, again, there were mass protests, this time not about elections. This this one was about, um, you know, it was it was sparked the by the economic, the economy, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that was the spark. And, yeah. you know, the, the, the slogans were much more radical. Um, the regime crushed it pretty quickly. Um, but this time, what's incredible is that, first of all, from 
basically day one, the slogan has been death to the Islamic Republic, death to the mm -hmm. dictator, right? So there is, there's just no equivocation on what the demand is. And secondly, you watch these videos of what's happening and yeah. people either because they're, they simply have nothing left to lose or they've just suffered so much, they're just unafraid. I mean, the security forces come out and as soon as you know one security agent gets separated from the pack, mm -hmm. people just jump on him and destroy him. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just it's that anger and rage that's coming out. And the regime tries to quell these protests. So for example, a few days ago, they attacked a university. Imagine you know York University or University of Ottawa where the students are trapped on campus yeah. and goons show up and start shooting live bullets to arrest people. This happened right. um, and in an attempt to stop university students from protesting. And what happened the next day, far more university students were out in the street protesting and all these other campuses were shut down. So, yeah. you know, the usual tactics that the regime uses to shut protests down are simply not working anymore, which is why I remain really hopeful that with international pressure and domestic pressure, uh, yeah. this regime is uh, like, it just, this regime just can't go back to, you know, business as usual. It just can't after what's happened. Yeah. Um, and if the if the current revolution succeeds and the regime is toppled, uh, the big question is, um, what is it going to replace? What What's going to replace it? Will it be something better or something worse? It's hard to imagine it will be worse, but there are, you know, let me let me first lay out the worst case scenarios, right? The worst yeah. case scenario would be, um, you know, the clerics are gone, but the IRGC, for example, ends up taking over and it becomes okay. a, less okay. a clerical establishment, but it becomes a military junta. Mm -hmm. That's possible. The other possibility, and this is the one that the, the regime itself keeps publicizing, if you get rid of us, you know, uh, Iran will turn into Syria, some kind of civil okay. war. So these are the very dark predictions. I frankly don't think that's what's going to happen. I, I have much more positive views of what's what's to come. Iran has a, for all the problems it has, it has a pretty strong civil society that has spent years thinking about what democracy is and democracy would look like. There's a large diaspora population that has lived with democracy now in the West for many years. So we have some experience with it. Um, and these protests are sort of leaderless at the moment, but there are figures that have popularity and they have democratic visions of what Iran should look like. So that gives me hope as well. Um, I think my hope is that these protests eventually get to a point where the regime has to concede and has to hold, at, at the very least, a referendum. Um, okay. Do you want the Islamic Republic or do you want some other form of government? And I have no doubt that, you know, another form of government, be it uh, you know, a full republic or a constitutional monarchy, one of those will end up prevailing over the Islamic Republic. That's my hope. Okay. Um, many expat uh, Iranians, for example, who left at the time of the revolution, um, uh, look back at the time of the Shah as the golden age, and uh, he was seen as a great secularizer, um, although the regime uh, had its share of corruption and so on. Um, so what could we expect of an Iran post the Khomeini area? Will, I mean, will they turn to liberal democracy or, um, I mean, I think it's a version of the earlier question, but, you know, or is it going to be something worse than the present regime? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And it is, yeah. you know, a, a version of the earlier question you asked. My, yeah. my guess is given, first of all, I, I, I do not foresee religion continuing in government in any meaningful sense. Having had religion forced down their throat for 40 years. Iranians are incredibly secular, actually. Interesting. So, Kaveh, on that, how uh, religious, uh, how how deep 
deeply entrenched are these uh, are is uh, is are these strong religious identities in Iran? You you don't think that uh, there's a section, a strong section of the population that uh, feels strongly about this? I think there is a section of the, the population that is yeah. religious, certainly, yeah. just as you know, before the revolution, there was a segment of the population that was religious. right, of course. But I think the experience of mixing religion with politics is mm-hmm. is we've run that experiment and we know that this experiment is a disaster. Okay. And mm-hmm. I think most decent religious people in Iran also see that they may want to practice private faith. And that's fine. And I, I hope that a future um, democratic government in Iran you know, allows people to, to be Muslims if they want to be, even outwardly so if they want to be. Yeah. But uh, that, that should have no role in, in government. Yeah. Um, there is obviously a, a segment of the population who views their religiosity through the lens of the regime itself, because okay. they potentially, by, by virtue of their financial connections or whatever, they want to preserve this form of religiosity. But I think they're a very small segment of the population. Yeah. Um, to go back to your earlier question, um, I think... You know, a, a future Iran um, will be liberal and democratic in outlook, precisely for the reasons that I mentioned earlier. You know, we now have spent a lot of time thinking about why um, the 79 revolution went wrong. Um, we've spent a lot of time thinking about what makes a democracy work. We have a lot of people, millions of people that have lived in the West with an experience with democracy. And we also now have this uprising of women who have had their rights taken away. So I think any future government will have to be responsive to women. Um, So a future government will be one that respects the rights of women. And typically a a regime or a a structure of government that respects women's rights tends to be democratic and liberal and outlook. It it almost by definition has to be. Mm -hmm. And so I I, I am very hopeful about kind of what's to come. Well, um, so yeah, so Kaveh, I mean, on that note, I'm going to have to leave it there. But uh, I do hope that, uh, you know, the protests succeed. uh, And I do hope that we in the West take note of uh, what is happening in Iran and give them all the support that they that they need. Uh, I do take hope that, you know, the Soviet Union at one point was seemed unshakable. Uh, and it it will need to eventually shatter. So I uh, eventually to fall. So I hope that uh, that there's a similar outcome in Iran. And I really do appreciate your perspective. And thank you for uh, joining me on the show to talk about Iran. Thank you. I really I really appreciate the invitation. I wrote a piece uh, the other day where I said revolutions sometimes seem impossible until the moment they become inevitable. And I think okay. we've, we've hit that moment now. So thank you for for the chance to talk about it. Perfect. Thank you, Kaveh. Thank you so much. Thank you.